7, and you will notice a, a change in the type of literature that we've been going through in the book of Daniel. The first six chapters are basically narrative, uh, the, the, the explanation of historical events. We have seen Nebuchadnezzar come and conquer Jerusalem and uh, uh, Judah and take captives and take treasures out of the temple and ultimately destroy the temple. And then we have followed the life of Daniel and his three friends, Azariah, Mishael, and uh, uh, Azariah um, and, and, uh, in Babylon. And then we saw the conquering of Babylon, the Darius, the, the Mede being the new king, and Daniel, uh, the conspiracy against Daniel that resulted in him being thrown into the lion's den. The first six chapters have basically been narrative, uh, a history, a describing of the history of Daniel and his friends in exile in Babylon and the kings and the events that happened there. When we turn to chapter 7, we will see begin studying a new type of literature, a literature that is called apocalyptic literature. And the word apocalyptic literally means an unveiling, a revelation. In fact, the New Testament book, Revelation, in, some, uh, uh, in the original, the, the Greek language, it's called the apocalypse, the re revelation, the unveiling of uh, future events. And so when we come to Daniel chapter 7, we will notice uh, a different type of literature. And also notice that we go back in time. Uh, in chapter 5, Bel, uh, Belshazzar was, saw the, he was the king that was having a party and he uh, was drinking wine out of the vessels that had been taken from the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and he saw the writing on the wall. The writing on the wall that foretold his the fall of his kingdom and the numbering of his days and the destruction. And uh, we're told at the end of chapter 5 that that very night, uh, the king of Chaldeans was slain. And now when we go to chapter 7, we see that Daniel goes back in time and records a vision that he had during the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. And so not only are we changing type of literature, but we're going back in time to the reign of Belshazzar. And so uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while he was on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had an eagle's wings. <clears throat> I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And, and, and they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, the fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. 
It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till the thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery steam stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body. And the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. And so as we come to Daniel chapter 7, we come to a new type of literature. We speak of apocalyptic literature. And uh, uh, the phrase that introduces chapter 7 is a phrase that is very common in apocalyptic literature. You'll see it uh, in Revelation. Uh, John says, I saw, I saw, uh, verse 6, I looked, verse 7, after this, I saw. Um, and so we see the revelation, the unveiling of information. Um, Apocalyptic literature is a revelation of new knowledge, an unveiling, a revealing. And you know, that seems ironic to us. The literature is called an unveiling, a revelation. And yet when we read apocalyptic literature, it seems like everything is cloaked in symbology. We see, see these different symbols that to us are maybe difficult to understand, that are hard to uh, uh, interpret. And, and so there's all of this this vivid symbology here in the last half of the book of Daniel, we'll see that. We see that in the book of Revelation. And while it's called a, an, a, an unveiling, a revealing, to us, sometimes it seems like an unsolvable mystery uh, because of all the symbology and all of the details, things that maybe aren't necessarily explained to us. And so it's helpful for us not to get bogged down in all of the details and all of the symbols is helpful for to us to identify the main idea, the main point, and uh, really the main point of all apocalyptic literature uh, that we have 
We have a little bit in Isaiah. There's some in Ezekiel. We have it in the last half of Daniel. We have it in the book of Revelation. The main theme in biblical apocalyptic literature is that God is in control of all of human history and he will ultimately have a great victory over evil. And so really that's the bottom line. God is sovereign. God is in control. Nothing happens apart from his plan and his purpose. And he is bringing up kings and taking down kings. He's establishing kingdoms and tearing down kingdoms. But he is working his plan and his purpose to ultimately overrule evil and establish his kingdom that will endure forever. That He will have a great victory over evil. And it's uh, apocalyptic literature is designed to give hope to God's people in the midst of an environment where it looks like evil is winning. And, uh, uh, you know, Daniel's here and he's in Babylon. He's in the midst of uh, wicked pagan kings who are drinking wine from the vessels, the golden vessels that have been taken from the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And, uh, and this feast and this debauchery, this pagan king, all the pagan influences. But this book, these visions are given to encourage Daniel, even though it looks like evil is winning, uh, it's written to remind and assure God's people that God is in control, God is working his plan, God is working his purpose, even when it looks like evil is running amok and is actually, uh, looks like evil is going to win. And so the point of this type of literature is not to give us uh, uh, great and vivid detail about the end of the cosmos, the end of the world. And it's certainly not given uh, to enable us to calculate the time, uh, the time and the season, since no man can know that. But the literature is given to assure us of the sovereignty of God and that he is working a plan and ultimately evil and suffering will be wiped off the face of the earth and God will visibly reign on the earth and ultimately in a new heavens and a new earth. And so apocalyptic literature is to show us God's sovereignty and to assure God's people in the midst of evil that one day God will, will co completely remove all evil and suffering uh, from his people. One writer said that biblical apocalyptic is a sort of prophecy that seeks to enlighten and encourage a people despised and cast off by the world is to encourage and enlighten them with a vision of the God who will come to impose his kingdom on the wreckage and rebellion of human history. And it communicates this message through the use of wild, scary, imaginative, bizarre, and head-scratching imagery. <laughs> so uh, uh, I thought that was a pretty good, pretty good definition uh, to, to reassure God's people that he is in control, that he will eradicate evil and suffering, and he uses vivid imagery to help drive home that point. And so the key to interpreting apocalyptic literature is to find the main point, the main point of connection between the imagery and the Holy Spirit's intended meaning without engaging in speculation about all the points of the imagery. Sometimes the imagery is just given to create this uh, uh, the sense of the the, the hugeness of things that are going on, and maybe every little detail is not significant or important. Uh, if it was, it would be told to us. 
just as Daniel asks for an interpretation and the angel tells him what he needs to know about the vision. So that's, uh, we need to guard ourselves from getting lost in the details. And so usually in apocalyptic literature, there are three main points. It is a message of encouragement to the oppressed, to those who are suffering under evil. Number two, it is a warning to the oppressors. God is just, God is righteous, and God is a judge, and you will give an account. And third, it is a call to faith uh, to those who are wavering and a call to, to persevere, to overcome, to endure suffering, and to put your trust in God's truth and not human wisdom. And so those are the three main points. And, uh, and so, uh, so let's get into the text. That kind of introduces the type of literature that we're dealing with. Uh, and we will see that Daniel chapter 7 really makes the same point of Daniel chapter 2. Remember Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. What did Nebuchadnezzar see in his dream in chapter 2? Yeah, a massive statue with a head of gold, trunk and arms of silver, legs of iron and feet of iron meat mixed with clay. So he saw this image and, the, and what did those different parts of that statue represent different kingdoms nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold and then you had the different kingdoms and so uh the, the really this is the this is the same message but the four kingdoms that were rec represented by parts of that statue in daniel chapter 2 what are they represented by in chapter 7 these beasts that come up out of the sea all right, so it's the same, four kingdoms, same message, probably the same four kingdoms, Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Most probably uh, uh, the same four kingdoms, and yet it also uh, represents all of human history. Uh, there will be kings, there will be kingdoms. Don't expect that they will be better. <laughs> they will uh, probably be worse. And things are going to get worse before they get better. That's also kind of a theme of apocalyptic literature. Um, and so, uh, so, so the four kingdoms, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, and the outcome that God ultimately replaces those human kingdoms with his kingdom that will cover all of the earth and that will uh, endure forever. And so... Very similar message between Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in chapter 2. Daniel has a dream in chapter 7. And uh, we will also uh, meet a, a new character uh, in, in chapter 7 that uh, was not specifically introduced in chapter 2. Uh, and the main difference between chapter 2 and chapter 7 is a matter of perspective. Chapter 2 shows these four kingdoms from a human perspective. Precious metals, majestic, gold, silver, iron. And so you see the strength and the majesty of these kingdoms, the influence. As somebody looks from earth, they see these powerful, wealthy, influential kingdoms. 
But in chapter 7, we see these kingdoms from God's perspective. Basically immoral, self-seeking, cruel, destructive, animal-like, abusers of power, oppressors. Um, and so, uh, so we see a different perspective of these kingdoms. The kingdoms in chapter 2 decre- increasingly corrupt as they go from the gold to the silver to the iron to the iron mixed with clay. Uh, but here in uh, Daniel chapter 7, there's not any positive Im- impact of any of, these, any of these kingdoms. And so in this passage, remember, Daniel is speaking to those people who are in exile. This is a, a message to encourage those people who have been taken from their homes into a foreign land. Their temple's been destroyed. They're surrounded by pagans. They're surrounded by pagan influences and pagan propaganda. This is a message to encourage them that God is sovereign, God is in control, and God will judge their oppressors, and he will ultimately uh, deliver his people. And this, this, this message is delivered through... Uh, uh, different characters the first set of characters the four beasts and so this chapter describes four beasts and where do these beasts from where do these beasts come where do they come from out of the sea yeah we see uh, four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up from the sea each different from the other and uh, uh, in the scripture what type of feeling does the sea usually, is it usually given to generate power? And, and, and is it seen as a good power or a bad, the sea? How do people in, the, in ancient Israel, how do they usually view the sea? They fear it. It's dangerous. It's powerful. It's turmoil. Um, and and it, is, it is usually uh, denotes... Uh, Opposition to God, it's fearful, it's mysterious, it's dark. In fact, uh, the, the sea begins as chaos and formless that God must control. Way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we read, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And so the sea is this chaotic, dark, force that God has to overrule and bring form and bring order to. And uh, in the, the book of Job, we read about God shutting in the sea with doors when it bursts forth. He set a limit for it. He set bars and doors and said, you may come this far, but no further. And here your proud waves must stop. The sea is something that must be controlled and subdued by God. And God sets up the limits for the sea, limits the amount of damage and destruction that it can do. And uh, watch the videos of the storm surge in Florida if you want to see a picture of, a, of, of the, uh, the, the winds stirring up the great sea and the danger and the destruction that the water can do when it comes outside of the boundaries that have been set for it. Uh, God set bars and doors for the sea and said, this is as far as you can go. Your proud ways have to stop here. Um, and the book of Psalms says, he rebuked the waters that were covering the earth and they retreated over the mountains to the place that he founded for them. He set a boundary for them that they could not pass over 
and that they, uh, they could not return to, over, uh, to cover the earth. And so the sea is presented as a chaotic and hostile element that's hostile to God, must be controlled by him. And these beasts come up out of the chaotic sea, which is characterized by disorder and hostility to God. And the angel that interprets this, verse 17, he says, those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. And so here the sea is representing the, the, the world system that is chaotic and disorderly, hostile to God. And so out of this, this uh, chaos of human history, these four kings, these four kingdoms arise. Out of this chaotic, fearful, disorderly place. Out of the earth, the disorder of human history is where they come. And also notice another element of disorder Notice these creatures, these beasts, are all like hybrids. All right? When you use the word hybrid, what, do you, what, do you, what, do you, what does that word mean? Yeah, so it's putting two things together that, uh, that are different. And so notice the first was like a lion with eagle's wings. So like a beast of the, the field, but with the wings of a bird of the air. Um, a bear, the second beast, was like a bear with tusks, the, the word between its teeth, or tusks like a, uh, a boar would have. And then the third beast, we see a leopard, which also has on its back four wings of a bird and four heads. And so these, these creatures are, are uh, uh, of themselves disorderly. And then the fourth is just simply called a, a, a beast, not like the others, but dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, huge iron teeth, devouring, breaking in pieces. And so you have this monster with ten horns. And so even the description of the beast is disorderly, an element of disorder. Um, they're... they're uh, not like, you know, God created things to reproduce according to their kind. And this is disorder as these things are not in one kind. There is the, the hybrid of, uh, of these, these beasts. So these beasts stand in contrast to the good and orderly creation where God created all things according to their kinds. Uh, and the fourth beast is so horrible uh, that it can't even be described as an animal. And there'll be more about that beast at the end of the chapter, beginning the text we'll look at next week, beginning in verse 19. And so from the, so we have the succession of evil, disorderly human kingdoms, these kings, kingdoms rising up out of the disorderly, hostile, chaotic uh, sea of human history. These beings, these beasts, come up out of the earth. And so the first character we see are the, 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 these four beasts. And then, this, and then we meet another character. The second character is the Ancient of Days. Verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. 
His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. And so we see the ancient of days. And we see six truths emphasized about uh, this one, the ancient of days. Six truths emphasized about God. Um, What color? is mentioned white and what does white symbolize in the bible purity holiness he is pure and holy Uh, and so now we immediately see a contrast to the disorder the chaos the sea these beasts coming in out of the sea now we see this ancient of days the picture of purity and holiness um and then uh uh, his garment was white, the hair of his head was pure like wool. The second thing we see, his throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. So what, do you, what usually comes to mind when you see fire in the Bible? Judgment. And what? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, judgment and 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 bright. Yeah, the brightness of God's judgment. Uh, the Bible says in both the Old and the New Testaments, our God is a consuming fire. In Deuteronomy and Hebrews, He's a jealous God that pours out wrath on those who are in rebellion against Him. Fire is painful. Fire burns up. Fire consumes. Fire leaves destruction and devastation in its wake. If water brings devastation and destruction, fire brings, uh, also brings destruction and devastation in its wake. But fire is also a symbol of holiness. Just as the white is a symbol of purity, fire is also a symbol of holiness. You remember when, when Moses was 80 years old and still working for his father-in-law, he saw a bush that was on fire and was not consumed. And as he approached the bush... God spoke to him, so this bush is on fire, it's not consumed. God speaks to Moses and he tells him, remove your sandals because where you are standing is holy ground. And fire is a symbol of God's holiness, but also how he works to make us holy. Malachi chapter 3 verses 2 and 3 says that God is like a refiner's fire. He tells his people that he will refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to him in righteousness. He will burn away the impurities. He will burn away the unrighteousness. He will burn away the worthless things and leave only that which is precious and pure. And so God's fire is a symbol of wrath. It's also a a symbol of his holiness and how he purifies his people, how he makes us holy, sending us through the refiner's fire, burning away those things that are useless and leaving what is precious and pure. And so the God who is holy will sit over the nations in judgment. And so we have this throne, a fiery flame, a fiery stream coming forth from him in judgment um, and destruction. Notice what else about the throne. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. All right, so what, what do wheels represent? 
Movement, mobility. That's right. God's throne is not static. It's not just one place. But God's throne has, has wheels of burning fire. God's judgment is not confined to one place. God is omnipresent. He's present everywhere. And so is his judgment and wrath. God's throne is over all the earth. There's no place where you can go to flee from his presence. There is no place where you can go and hide from his wrath. There is nowhere you can escape. In the apocalypse and in, in, in Revelation, the, the, the unveiling in, Re, in Revelation, the people cry out for the mountains to fall on top of them to save them from the wrath of God. There is nowhere you can go to hide. There is nowhere you can escape. There is nowhere you can flee from the presence of God, from his justice and his judgment. The stream of fire will flow from that mobile throne like fiery lava coming from a volcano and will incinerate everything that is opposed to God and his holiness. And so uh, uh, we see his holiness, we see his wrath and his, his, his uh, mobility, his omnipresence. And then the fourth truth we see in this passage is that he is worthy of worship. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And so uh, angels worship him. Angels minister to him. Angels serve before his throne. And in the, the ancient world, in the Hebrew language, the largest number they had a word for was ten thousand. It was the largest number that they, that they had. And so we see thousands of thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. So uh, Daniel, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is using the biggest number that he, can, that he knows, that he has a word for, and he's multiplying it by itself, just showing an uncountable number, absolutely the highest number that he can give any expression to. There are so many angels serving the God of the universe that they simply cannot be counted. And so he is worthy of worship. The holy angels minister to him, serve before him. And then when the judge of the universe is ready to judge, the court was seated and the books were open. All right, so, uh, so, after, so when judgment is ready to be delivered, they sit in reverence and awe. And then the fifth truth we see about God in this passage, the Ancient of Days, is his knowledge. The books were open. God has memory of and a record of every deed, every word, every thought of every person who, will ever, who has ever lived. The books will be open. The information is perfect and complete. The books will be open and all will give an account. As Jesus says, even of every careless word that they have spoken, God's knowledge is, is vast and complete and nothing is hidden from his sight. We can't hide from him and our thoughts, our actions, our words are not hidden from him either. He has a record of all that has occurred on the earth. And then sixth, we see his sovereignty. God is sovereign over the beast and the horns. He raises up kings. He raises up nations and sets their boundaries. He determines their rise and their fall. He sets their dates, their seasons, and their time. Verse 11, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. 
I watched till the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning flame. And as for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So God is sovereign. He raises up nations. He uses them to accomplish his purpose. And then he takes them down and he judges them for their rebellion and for their excesses, for their evil. You see the sovereignty of God, the sovereign power of God. He removes kings. He raises up kings. He establishes nations. He gives their seasons and their times, the date that they come to power, the date they will be destroyed. All of those seasons, all of their boundaries are set by the sovereignty of God. And so we've seen four beasts. We've seen the Ancient of Days. And then we meet a third character in this passage. The third character is one like the Son of Man. Verse 13. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. They brought him near before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which will not be destroyed. And so here we see all the human kingdoms will be destroyed and they will be replaced with an everlasting kingdom ruled by one like the Son of Man. Now what destroyed the statue in, in chapter 2? Daniel chapter 2, what destroyed the statue? Well, yes, but what, what was in Nebuchadnezzar's dream? What did he see? Verse thir- chapter 2, verse 34, You watch while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. And then the stone that struck the image, verse 35, became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. All right, so in chapter 2, it was a stone. Um, The the nations represented by gold, silver, iron, and clay were destroyed by a great stone that became a great mountain and filled the earth. But here, verse 13, we see a description of that stone. The fire went forth from the throne, devoured them, And now that stone, the one that has the kingdom, is ruled by one who is like a son of man. The earthly kingdoms are described as beasts, like a lion, like a bear, like a leopard. The four simply a monster with ten horns, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. But now this ruler is like the son of man. This ruler looks like a human, not a beast. 
this new ruler is like a son of man. And so we see the difference. And then we also see another difference. Where did the four beasts come out of? The sea. Where does the Son of Man come from? Out of heaven, on the clouds. Yeah, so these beasts come out of the disorderly, chaotic, dark, and dangerous mess of human history. But the one, like the Son of Man, comes out of heaven, the clouds of heaven. And the prophet Isaiah had written not long before this, See, the Lord is coming on a swift cloud. The psalmist wrote, Sing praises to God, sing praises to His name. Lift up a song to Him who rides on the clouds. The psalmist also says, You, O Lord, make the clouds your chariot. And so now Daniel presents the one like the Son of Man coming like God. Riding on the clouds, coming from heaven, So one like the Son of Man, but coming with all the signs and display of divinity. Making the clouds his chariot, which is what God does. And so Daniel presents one like a Son of Man coming like God. And the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days. They're brought near to him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. The judge had found the beasts guilty and judged them. God took away their kingdom. He took away their dominion and he gave it to the Son of Man. The Son of Man replaces these beasts and rules over all the earth, over all peoples, all nations, and all languages will serve him. And his kingdom, unlike the kingdom of the beast, this kingdom will never be destroyed, and it will never pass away. It is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which will not be destroyed. And the angel even says uh, that the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever, he says, the angel says in verse 18. And so uh, the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days. The kingdom is taken away from these beasts and given to the Son of Man who will rule over all the earth forever and ever and ever. His kingdom will never come to an end. Well, how how does Daniel respond to this vision? Verse 15. Yeah, grieved in my spirit. The visions of my head troubled me, kind of like Nebuchadnezzar. Remember how Nebuchadnezzar responded to the vision? What does this mean? And Daniel, so now Daniel, who has the power to interpret dreams, is grieved in his spirit and troubled by his own dream. <laughs> and, and, but the Lord, uh, you remember, uh, was, was it Zechariah who, who, who always talked about the one who, who uh, talked to me? And he went and asked the, the dreams, how, you know, the one who talked to me? Well, well here... Fortunately, there's an angel in Daniel's dream that uh, he asked and the angel interpreted to him. So I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit, troubled, evil beast, a terrifying monster. What awful pain must await God's people? How much suffering will they have to endure? What does this mean? When will it take place? What will the dominion of these beasts be and what will it be like? What will we have to endure? What will we have to experience through the reign of these four beasts. 
and the judgment. What, what does this mean? And so verse 16, he says, I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he, made, he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So here's what we need to know from all of this imagery. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. And so uh, that's the interpretation. Four kingdoms come out of the earth. They are destroyed. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom that will never be destroyed. Now Daniel has more questions. He wants to know the truth about the fourth beast. We'll talk about that next week, Lord willing. Uh, but uh, tonight we want to focus on the one like the Son of Man. And in the New Testament, Son of Man is the most common name that Jesus uses for himself. Jesus, when he refers to himself, most often uses the title, the Son of Man. He says the Son of Man has given authority. Jesus declares that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus declares that the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. The Son of Man has given power and given authority. To Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And Jesus also tells us that the Son of Man will come with clouds. And speaking of the last days in Mark's gospel, Jesus said in those days after that suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great glory and authority. And during his trial, when the high priest asked him if he was the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One, Jesus answered, I am. Then you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And so Jesus takes the imagery, the prophecy of Daniel, and applies it to himself. The Son of Man, like a human, coming like God, fully man, fully God, Jesus, the Son of Man. And so Daniel chapter 7 is a, is a message of hope. Vivid, terrifying imagery but ultimately, it's a message of hope. It's designed to bring hope and comfort and encouragement to God's people. But it brings hope and encouragement without ignoring the fact that there is evil and that uh, evil regi regimes, evil rulers, evil governments corrupt human history. And that human history is this chaotic, disorderly, dark and fearful thing that gives rise to beasts that abuse authority. There will be evil rulers, there will be evil regimes, there will be evil empires. And these four beasts represent evil empires that arose in the past, but also representative of evil empires that emerge from the chaotic and evil world that is in rebellion against God. But Daniel 7 reminds us 
that God is in control. He is in control even of evil empires, even of the sea, and even of the beast that come up out of it. God is in control. And Daniel 7 probably makes us, you know, reminds us that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Each beast that emerges from the sea is worse than the ones that preceded it. Um, until we end up with the, the beast that is dreadful and terrible and exceedingly strong, devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet, different from all the other beasts. It doesn't get better with technology. It doesn't get better with advanced knowledge and wisdom. It doesn't get better. It gets worse. No human government will bring peace and security. No human government will bring holiness and righteousness. No matter how much technology, no matter how much power, no matter how much wisdom, no human government will bring holiness and righteousness and peace and security. And so we can just, you know, if we, we sit and say, well, you know, if we just had the right person in the White House, if we just had the right party in control of Congress, if we just had the right uh, justices on the Supreme Court, everything will get better. It's not really the message of Daniel chapter 7. And so we must not deceive ourselves and say if we just had the right people in charge, there would be holiness and righteousness and truth and safety and security. But we also must not despair when the wrong person's in the White House and the wrong party's in charge of Congress and the wrong kinds of justice are on the Supreme Court. Don't despair <laughs> because God is sovereign, God is in control. Don't despair when the state comes against you. Don't despair of the technology that can bring destruction in a moment. This is a message to God's people in the midst of an evil, chaotic, dark, and dangerous world. God is in control, and God will replace all human kingdoms with his kingdom of holiness and righteousness and truth. He will eradicate evil. And the Son of Man will reign forever and ever in righteousness and in truth. No matter how bad things get, God is still in control. Take heart. Things are not as they seem. God is sovereign. And, you know, even in the, when the beasts are coming out of the sea, God is working behind the scenes. And then he comes out into the open in judgment in the Ancient of Days. And so even God is sovereign even in allowing these evil regimes to resist, allowing evil rulers to ha harass and oppress his people, allowing sinful government to persecute his people for a season and for a time. God is even sovereign over that. And so the message is don't give up. Don't let evil rulers rob you of your joy. Deliverance is near. Redemption draweth nigh. And when suffering has reached its fullness, God will invade human history, judge the nations. He will, he will totally destroy all wicked, evil rulers uh, that harass and oppress his people. And he will give authority to the Son of Man, his Son Jesus. And he will perfectly establish his, he will establish his perfect kingdom. And Jesus will rule over a new heaven and a new earth the kingdom that will never end and so we must not respond like daniel did grieved in our spirit 
and a body and visions of our head troubling us. Have hope. Be encouraged. Persevere. Don't give up. Don't let these evil kingdoms rob you of your joy. Don't respond with grief and anxiety and despair. While persecution does occur, we know that the kingdom has already been given to the Son of Man. It has not come in its fullness on the earth, but the King came. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet he was without sin. Then he died on the cross as the once and for all sacrifice for our sins and rose from the dead. And he ascended into heaven on the clouds. And he sat down at the right hand of the Father, the Ancient of Days, where he ever lives to make intercession for us. He intercedes for us, and he is at the right hand of the Father, enthroned with his enemies under his feet. Even now, the king is seated at the right hand. And we're called to live under his authority, and we're called to persevere and endure, to not lose hope, to keep our eyes on Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, to live under his authority and to look forward to the day when he comes again to finally, once and for all, destroy all human and earthly kingdoms and reign in a new heaven and a new earth with all who trust him. We are called to live with hope that the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever even forever and ever. And the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the dead ensure that and assure us that that is true. So don't lose hope. Don't despair. Persevere. Be overcomers. Keep your eyes on Jesus. I have any questions about uh, Daniel 7, apocalyptic literature, anything about that? Thank you. It's an unveiling. It is. A Lord willing, we will get more into the, to the fourth beast and the boastful horn. Uh, Daniel asked more questions, and so uh, uh, more is revealed to him about that fourth beast. Uh, all right, let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that you are in control. We confess there are times that we have a hard time believing that. We look around us, we see our circumstances, we see the evil seeming to prosper and the righteous suffering. We see evil called good and good called evil. We see rebellion, we see disorder, we see brokenness evil and destruction, Lord, and, and we are tempted to despair, 
to be filled with anxiety and fear and uncertainty and even tempted to, to compromise, to, to go along with these evil beasts in order to be safe and secure or to think that the next beast that comes out of the sea is going, going to be better. We confess that, Lord, we so often are given over to human wisdom, human authority, human power, and try to make that the source of our hope. And Lord, we, we repent. Lord, thank you for this reminder that safety, security, holiness, righteousness will never come from the disorderly human condition. That truth and righteousness comes from you and the Son of Man. And so, Lord, help us not to despair. Help us not to be anxious. Help us not to compromise. Help us to persevere, to endure, to run the race that's set before us, and to keep our eyes on Jesus. And to believe, and to be encouraged, that He will reign forever and ever in truth and righteousness and justice and peace. And the kingdom will be given to all who fear Him and who have longed for His appearing. We thank You for the Son of Man, for His death on the cross, His resurrection, and His present ministry, even right now, interceding for us. And we thank You for the promise of His return to make all things right. And Lord, we pray the last prayer of Scripture, come quickly. Lord Jesus. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.